welcome to the Primary Ride Home for Wednesday, April 10th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, Nate Silver teaches us how to count candidates. Biden is rumored to be ready to announce after Easter. Oregon is poised to join the national popular vote movement. Washington State has a primary that will actually matter for a change. And Amy Walter breaks down everything you need to know about 2020, the big picture stuff. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. This Democratic primary field is so big, it is so full of candidates, that we need to find a methodology to figure out who's really serious here, who counts as a major candidate, and who is just somebody who filled out some paperwork. To give you some context on this challenge, let's talk for a moment about Mike Gravel, who just announced on Monday. He is running a single-issue campaign with the stated intent to do three things. First, get into the Democratic primary debates. Second, raise a ruckus during those debates. And third, quit the race after the second debate and donate any remaining money to charities, including clean water for Flint, Michigan. Now, Gravel is a former U.S. senator from Alaska. He served from 1969 through 1981 and is currently living as a retiree in California. His candidacy this year was put together, literally the paperwork was done for him, by a group of students who are enthusiastic champions for his cause. So, does Mike Gravel count as a major candidate? I mean, he's a former senator with decades of experience, so he's got that. But does his stated goal of not playing to win somehow make him minor? And how do we even figure that out? Well, all right, let's dig in. In late March, Nate Silver of 538 laid out two key ways by which a candidate could become major in the eyes of his publication. The first path is to meet the Democratic National Committee's stated rules that will get a candidate into the presidential primary debates. There's a link to the full rules in the show notes, by the way. So the DNC says you need to meet one of the following two objective tests. Either receive at least 1% of the vote in three national polls or early state polls, according to a published list of polls the DNC says meet its criteria, or receive donations from at least 65,000 different people, including a minimum of 200 donors each in 20 different states. Those donors can give as little as $1 and still count. I do want to briefly remark on that second option in the DNC thing. It would be technically possible for lots and lots of relatively minor media figures to file the paperwork and get 65,000 donations from across 20 states. I mean, I'm not running, but I can think of a bunch of people, even podcast hosts from across the country, who already get the equivalent of that kind of raise on a monthly basis. Now, does that mean that they should show up on a debate stage? Well, technically, the DNC says yes. Okay, so Nate Silver defines the DNC method as the first way to become a major candidate. And the DNC path is interesting because it is 100% objective, and it is simple. There is no wiggle room to argue about whether Mike Gravel gets 65,000 donors or not. It's just math. Same thing with those polls. Either he does get 1% in three polls, or he does not. But the trouble is, especially for the lesser-known candidates, we won't actually know for sure whether they've met those tests until the DNC tells us or the candidate tells us, and we have to hope that their math is right and their statements are true. So what do we do in the meantime while we're waiting for that data? Well, if a candidate does not meet the DNC's test, or we don't know their true status on that test, Nate Silver lays out a second path that is a lot more complex, but is also objective. I'll give you the short version now, and his full article is in the show notes. 
Silver wants to see a candidate meet six out of the following 10 requirements. And I'm going to quote a long list here, so get your coffee ready. All right. Quote, one, has formally begun a campaign, not merely formed an exploratory committee. Two, is running to win, not merely to draw attention to an issue. Three, has hired at least three full-time staffers or equivalents. Four, is routinely campaigning outside of their home state. Five, is included as a named option in at least half of polls. Six, gets at least half as much media coverage as candidates who qualified for the debate. Seven, receives at least half as much Google search traffic as candidates who qualified for the debate. Eight, receives at least one endorsement from an endorser that 538 is tracking. Nine, has held any public office, elected or appointed. Ten, has held a major public office, president, vice president, governor, U.S. Senate, U.S. House, mayor of a city of at least 300,000 people, or member of a presidential cabinet, end quote. Yeah, so when Silver wrote that, it was March 26th, and on that date, he counted 14 major candidates, not including Joe Biden, because Joe Biden has not yet announced, but beyond those 14 major candidates, on that day, there were a total of 209 Democrats who were listed in the Federal Election Commission database as having filed the paperwork to get going. This is the reason Silver, and people like me, are looking for a way to figure out who counts as major because we just can't cover 209 people every day. Now, here's where Silver's problem proves its own validity. In the two weeks since Silver wrote his article, the total Democratic field has gone up to 227 candidates. There's a link in the show notes. You can check out that data for yourself from the FEC. Point is, that is more than one new candidate per day. And in terms of major candidates, well, Silver has not updated the article yet, but I would argue that Gravel is clearly on his way to achieving major status through the DNC donation route. Tim Ryan is now in the race and seems major to me. Eric Swalwell just announced as well and is definitely major. Wayne Messam finally made it official on March 28th, and by Silver's logic, he becomes major if he hires a few staffers and does a little traveling. So what exactly is the count now? It looks to me like 18, up from 14 just two weeks ago. And yeah, you're probably going to have to add Biden to that. The DNC says it has room for 20 candidates on its debate stage. Yeah. So let's check in two weeks from now and see how big the field is then. And speaking of the elephant in the room, Axios reports that Joe Biden is still planning to announce. He's targeting a date in late April, sometime after Easter, which falls on Sunday, April 21st this year, right before Earth Day. The Axios piece claims that recent allegations of inappropriate touching leveled against Biden have not dissuaded him from entering the field. Here's a snippet from the Axios piece. Quote, Joe knows the field will try to crush him once he announces, and he is totally prepared for it, one associate said. End quote. Now, the only other news Axios uncovered there is that after Biden's announcement, he plans to hold a series of major speeches. And that tidbit has me wondering, maybe the timing of the announcement has something to do with the health of his vocal cords. If you've heard Biden speak lately, he still sounds like he's getting over a super rough cold, which is not something you want when you're heading out to do a bunch of big speeches. So for now, we're all just Biden our time. (laughs) 
Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Meanwhile, CNN reports that Oregon, my home state, is on track to join a growing national popular vote interstate compact. In short, this means if enough states join a voting bloc, they will effectively sidestep the classic electoral college model in favor of a popular vote model enacted through the Electoral College itself. What? So wait, how does this work? Okay, the compact currently has more than a dozen states as members, plus the District of Columbia. The idea here is that the compact only needs to get to a total of 270 electoral votes under its control. And when, and only when, that happens, all those states that have joined the compact will immediately shift their instructions to their Electoral College members. They will instruct their electors to vote for the presidential candidate who wins the popular vote rather than whoever won their state specifically. This is kind of wild because it is technically constitutional, well, we sure think it is anyway, because it's happening at the state level, and that's where those electoral college electors come from. While this is definitely an end run around the current process, it's kind of fascinating. It's one of those it's-so-crazy-it-just-might-work kind of ideas. So right now, the compact has 189 electoral votes in total. The Oregon Senate just voted to join, then it goes to the Oregon House, which is very likely to approve it, then Governor Kate Brown has to sign the bill, which I am confident she will, and that adds Oregon's seven votes, bringing the compact up to 196. Hmm, not that far from 270, right? Well, actually, it is super far given how the electoral math adds up, But still, it's an interesting idea, so we'll keep talking about it. The states currently in the compact are California, Colorado, Connecticut, Delaware, Hawaii, Illinois, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York, Rhode Island, Vermont, Washington State, the District of Columbia, which does get three votes in the Electoral College, by the way, and New Mexico, which just joined last week. In the Democratic primary, the candidate most associated with this idea is Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, a state which, no coincidence, is on the list I just read. Warren, with most of the other primary candidates, has come out strongly in favor of abolishing the Electoral College altogether and instead adopting a direct popular vote mechanism. Now, to do that would be even harder than forming a voting bloc like this compact thing because, you know, the Constitution is kind of famously difficult to amend. But, While we're at it, this is also a handy use for the website electoralvotemap.com, which I mentioned at the end of Monday's show. 
you can use that site to punch in the current members of the compact, then play around with which states might join it while the map adds up the votes for you, and you will find out real quick just how hard it is to get to 270. Moving north from Oregon, let's talk about Washington State, which has changed its presidential primary system so that it, you know, actually matters now. On Sunday, state Democrats voted to use a primary election system going forward rather than the caucus method. State Republicans, by the way, were already hip to this a while back. Republicans switched to a primary system in 2016 and intend to stick with it for 2020. But for Democrats, this is a big change. And you may ask, why? Well, both Washington State and Oregon are pure vote-by-mail states, meaning you get the ballot in your mailbox, you fill it out, and you mail it back, or you drop it off at a library or whatever. So, requiring voters in those states to show up in person at a caucus is actually a bigger ask in this region than it is in states that have in-person voting. So the change here is that Washington State is dropping the caucus system permanently and moving to a mail-in primary. Finally, another reason for us to stay indoors. Now, this change normally wouldn't matter because Washington holds its primaries way, way too late in the cycle. But wait, what's that? Oh, there's actual breaking news. Washington State also moved its primary date up by more than two months. Washington used to run their primaries, well, okay, technically the caucuses and the primaries, in late May. But in 2020, those primaries will happen in early March, which puts them right after Super Tuesday. So for the first time in a long time, the primary vote from Washington State will actually matter. And remember, Washington Governor Jay Inslee is in the Democratic primary race this year. Coincidence? I think not. In an amusing footnote, the Washington State primary slash caucus thing has been so irrelevant that in both 2004 and 2012, the state legislature actually canceled it to save money because by the time it rolled around, it literally did not matter anymore. So let's hear it for Votes Mattering and Staying Home. In a piece for the Cook Political Report, national editor Amy Walter takes a step back from the day-to-day -day primary news and lays out the big picture for 2020. This is a super important article, honestly. The link is in the show notes at the bottom. And if you're looking for a way to understand the challenge that faces whoever wins the Democratic primary, this is the article you need to read. Let me walk you through just a part of it, the beginning part. Walter's first point is that it is super hard to be an incumbent president. Quote, since 1900, 19 presidents have sought re-election. Only five have failed. If you don't count Gerald Ford, who wasn't elected president, it is four out of 18. End quote. Now, Walter adds a big caveat there that the current president's job approval ratings trail those of the last eight presidents who sought re-election. But then again, George W. Bush won a second term with just a 48% approval rating in late 2004. So, hmm. Walter's second big point has to do with the economy. If the electorate perceives the economy as doing well, or at least not totally tanking, that's good for the incumbent. And so far, polling on the economy is really strong for the incumbent. But again, there's a big, huge blinking asterisk there. The economy polling is a weaker predictor than presidential approval rating. So it might not matter. The third point is that midterm elections and our current discussion, the 2018 blowout in favor of Democrats, is not predictive of presidential performance in the following election. 
We have a solid set of data on this one. If you go back to 1994, when Bill Clinton was two years into his first term, Democrats were utterly destroyed in the midterms, losing both chambers of Congress. But Clinton easily won his 96 re-election campaign at the same time the House and the Senate were both gone. So basically, just because the 2018 election was great for Democrats, that doesn't mean 2020 has to be. The two elections are not intrinsically tied together. Now, again, Walter has a big caveat on this, and in her piece, and I dig this, she calls out the caveats with the phrase, but, 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 in all caps underlined in each section, and here she brings a ray of hope to this particular discussion. Let me read from that part here. Quote, 2018 wasn't a typical midterm election. Part of the reason we can't, shouldn't, equate midterm with presidential performance is that turnout in midterms is much lower than in presidential elections. Last year, however, saw the highest midterm election turnout in 100 years. The gap between 2016 presidential turnout, 60%, and the 2018 midterm turnout, 50%, was the narrowest in recent history. As such, while 2018 may not be a predictor of 2020, it is a likely preview of the intensity of the upcoming election. End quote. Read the rest of that story for a long, thoughtful look at all the factors we need to watch. That's it for another episode of The Primary Ride Home. I've been your host, Chris Higgins. You can find me on Twitter at Chris Higgins. Those DMs are open in case you've got a lead on a story that I should check out. For all of you in the Plains states, please bundle up and stay safe during this weird weather situation. I'll talk to you all tomorrow. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.